0: In a debate between an evangelical Christian and an atheist, after the believer had spoken about God and His greatness, the atheist responded, I cannot believe in the God of the Bible. I cannot believe in the God of the Bible. It appears that since the fall, man has been dissatisfied. Not primarily with the notion that God exists, but with the type of God that Scripture declares exists. For the fundamental objection, it appears, that men have with God, is not that God lives, but the kind of God who lives. Fundamentally, men want a different God. The God of the scriptures does not seem inviting. They want a God of their own creation, a God who is like a genie in a bottle who fulfills our ever, every desire an indulgent God, a God like an old grandfather who greets our misdeeds with boys will be boys. We want a God who takes no offense and makes no demands. But the book of Deuteronomy presents the true God, a God who is both gracious and yet a God who also demands much, From his people. The book of Deuteronomy, though it is not a path that is often traveled, it appears, is an important book. It is really the second giving of the law. That's what it means. And the book of Deuteronomy essentially describes Moses as standing on the border of Canaan, he's on the plain of Moab. They had spent 40 years in the wilderness. And now they are about, the nation of Israel, they are about to enter the land of Canaan. Moses himself will not see the land. In other words, he will not enter the land. He will die before he ever sees or enters that land. And he stands before the nation of Israel. In this book of Deuteronomy, which is indeed a lengthy sermon. A sermon in which... He reflects on the journey that Israel had taken and that brought them from Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, to Moab, where they were now standing before him. It is indeed a call to obedience. It is a repetition and reflection upon the Ten Commandments that they had been given. It is a sermon that focuses on renewal of the covenant with God. And then towards the end of the, book, of the sermon or of this book, there is, of course, description about Moses' successor, Joshua. There is blessing that he pronounces upon the tribes of Israel and then the report of his death. But chapter 10 of Deuteronomy falls within that section in which the writer is calling for the people of God to be obedient to God. In chapter 10 verses 12 to 22 is preceded by a recounting of Israel's unfaithfulness in their journey with God. And that's what you find primarily in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. For the writer Moses speaks about how israel provoked the lord in the wilderness in verse 7 he speaks in verses 8 to 21 of the golden calf incident when aaron impatient with moses who was on the mountain created a golden calf for israel to worship and he speaks of the various locations in the wilderness where the people of god rebelled in chapter 9 22 to 24 and of course he also recounts his intercession on behalf of Israel before God. in chapter 10 1 to 7, Moses says that after his intercession, he of course he went to the mountain. he was called back to mount, up to the mountain and God there gave him the Ten Commandments again in verses one to seven. God wrote the Ten Commandments and gave it to him. he made an archaea box. he made an ark. And he put the two tablets of the law in that box. He speaks of how God separated the tribe of Levi, in verses 8 to 11, for service to the Lord. And then in our passage, in verses 12 to 20, there is an exhortation to the people of God to maintain covenantal faithfulness. And I want us to consider this theme, this matter of The call to faithfulness. In other words, first, there is a significant appeal for covenantal commitment to the Lord. That's what you find in verses 12 to 13. A significant appeal for covenantal commitment to the Lord. The writer Moses begins, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now anyone who reads these words could easily hear echoes of Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah told his generation that God required of them humility and justice and righteousness, three things. But Moses, as he stands before the congregation of Israel, a congregation that he will eventually leave, lays out before them the significant appeal An appeal for covenantal commitment that involves not three, but five requirements. What does God require of you, he asks. First of all, he says that God requires that they should fear him. So in verse 12, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? That's the first requirement but Moses brings before them. When we think of fear, we think of a number of things that frightens us. Most men will not easily confess that they are afraid of spiders, but there are a number of things that frightens us. We are afraid of spiders. and Some of us, if we go up to the CN Tower, we, we don't want to look over the edge because We are afraid of heights. And people have a problem flying for that very reason. There are some things that causes us to be terrified. Some people will not swim in Florida because they are afraid of being bitten by a shark. The question then is the fear of God the same thing as the fear of sharks or spiders or snakes. I want to suggest to you that that these are two different things. The verb that is used, yare, in the Old Testament to fear, occurs some 435 times in the Old Testament. And the semantic rage, that is the meaning of the word, is rather broad. It can and does on many occasions refer to stark terror. And there is a sense in which we should be terrified of God, that is of sinning against God. But very often when yare is used, fear, it does not so much mean terror or dread, but it is used in a special sense for reverence or reverential awe, that worshipful respect that we should have for God. And I don't want to tone down the emphasis of the word, but when he says, what does the Lord require of you? To fear the Lord your God. He's not saying that you must be terrified of God, but that you must hold God in reverential awe. You must see God as separate, as supreme, and give to Him the kind of honor and respect that He deserves because of His position. There must be reverence, this is something that God requires. That we do not treat his presence lightly. That we do not think of him lightly. That we do not respond to him lightly. That God is to be the exclusive object of reverential fear or awe. And this is not the dread of a moment, but it is to be a lifetime lived in the reverence for God. A life lived in submission and reverence. It is the condition you see of all true spiritual people, all those who have been changed. It is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the starting point of true wisdom. What does the Lord require of you? Moses says to this generation. First, To fear the Lord your God. To reverence him. To treat him with respect. And awe. But secondly, he says that God requires that they should walk in all his ways. To walk in all his ways. Not not in his ways, but in all his ways. What does it mean to walk in all his ways? Well, very often when the Old Testament talks about halak. The walking of a person is referring to their lifestyle, how they live their lives. So when he says they should walk in all his ways, it means that they should live their lives in conformity to God's way. You will find that in scripture, we are told that God is the rock and his work is perfect for all his ways. A justice, a a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is He in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. Or in Psalm 145 verse 17, the psalmist says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways, gracious in all His works. To walk then in the ways of the Lord is to live their lives in a manner that pleases Him, a life to live their lives in a way that, that characterizes God. It is to live, ultimately, in conformity to all God's revelation, and particularly to live in such a way that we are in congruency with God's righteousness and justice. In simply terms, it is to live justly and righteously before God. To live in full revelation of what God has revealed. Secondly, they are to walk in all his ways. But there is a third request, and I think that this request is at the very heart of what God commands it is placed third in the middle of these demands and it's there i think for a particular purpose because it's important that we see this as the main as the basic call of god to his people he says not only should they fear the lord their god and to walk in all his ways but they are to love him they are to love him in fact The call to love God is central. We find this in the passage where we have the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the writer says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right after he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And some ten times in the book of Deuteronomy, the writer calls upon the people of God to love the Lord. And to love the Lord with their whole persons. To love God means that they must think upon him. Because if they are to love the Lord with all their heart, that is with their mind, they must think upon him. They must be obedient to him, for true love of God is revealed by keeping his commandment. How do we know that one loves the Lord? By this you will know if you love me, if you keep my commandments. You see, the the heart must be engaged. There must be a desire for God, a longing for God, a delighting in God. You see, the one who loves God delights in God and delights in spiritual things. That person longs for the presence of God. That person seeks the presence of God. That person approaches God in prayer because he delights in the presence of the Almighty God. So this love for God is affective. It does, in a sense, demonstrate itself through our affections. We want to be with Him. You you, You know, some of you were married when you were dating. You know, you're living in another part of the city. You couldn't wait on a Friday evening to... To meet the person who you love and who you're going to go out with. No, no, nobody who truly loves another person says, Well, you know what? You know, it doesn't matter if I see you now or never. We don't, we don't do that. We want to be with them. And those who love the Lord long for the Lord and desire him. But those who genuinely love the Lord admire him, they, 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 they see in God his goodness and grace and they're attracted to him. And those who love the Lord seek to please Him. They seek to please Him. You shall love the Lord. That's a demand that is placed upon them. This love for God is not only revealed in emotive terms, but in ethical terms. Because one who loves God seeks to obey Him. But then the writer says, God demands more. He does not merely demand that one fears the Lord and walks in His way, and that one loves Him. But if one truly loves the Lord, then he will also serve the Lord. And so he says, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What does it mean to serve the Lord? Very often, we consider the term to serve the Lord as doing work for the Lord. And the term, Abad, that is used Serve can, you, can be used of people who do hard labor, who work in the field. So the word serve is the same word as used as work. But when it is used in relation to God, the term serve really means to worship. In other words, it carries a spiritual, religious sense. And you will find that in the book of Deuteronomy quite often frequently you will see that this verb to serve is used in the context of moses warning israel against serving the stars or the heavenly bodies or the forces in creation or false gods so let me give you a few instances moses says to the children of israel in chapter 4 verse 19 and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the hosts of heavens, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Notice that he places together, bowing down to the heavenly bodies and serving them. It, so what you, what you must see is that serving them, bowing down and serving must be seen, serving must be seen as a synonym for worship. Be careful, he says, when you see the heavenly bodies, that you do not bow down to them and worship them. You will find later on in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, again, to serve is used in the context of worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And you will find then that the verse is, the verb to serve is used synonymously with bowing down before idols. Instead, they are to serve the Lord. They are to bow down to God and worship. And here then, the demand of Israel. The demand that God has on Israel is not only that they should fear, reverence God, walk in all his ways, so please him in the way he has revealed himself. Not only must they love him, but they must serve him. They must worship him and by implication him and him alone. Not the heavenly bodies and certainly not the idols that they have made. They are to serve him. You notice in our passage it says, "You will serve the Lord with all your heart. The heart is the center the operational tower it is the center of our being from which our whole lives receive direction. It is the center of thought and the center of feeling and willing, so the center of thinking and feeling and willing it's the control tower of our lives the heart in hebrew the heart is not so much here as here it says you shall love the lord with all your heart with all your soul with your whole entire being you shall serve the lord with all your being but there is a fourth requirement that is to keep the commandments of the lord you see those who love the lord And those who worship him will also be obedient to obey his commandments. You see, true worship of God manifests itself in keeping the specific commandments of God. The decrees, that is the entire revelation of God. With all of its commands, prohibitions, and stipulations, one writer says. And in other words, they are to do this for their well-being. So the, the, the text in verse 13 says that they are to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. That is your good. What do we then require? And we see then in this significant appeal a call to fear the Lord. A call... To walk in his ways, a call to love him, a call to serve him, and a call to keep his commandments. But if we see the significant appeal for covenantal commitment, we see something of the justifiable ground for covenantal commitment to the Lord in verse 14. For Moses continues in the servant, indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the lord your god and the earth with all its all that is in it so first of all the question then is why why should they fear god why should they walk in his ways why should they love him serve him and obey him Well, moses tells them he says in verse 14 indeed The heavens and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, the one who calls you to covenantal commitment, to loyalty and to faithfulness to him. First of all, he is the sovereign of the universe. And he describes something of the comprehensiveness of God's rule by using a figure, a literary figure of speech called a merism, where polar opposites, night and day, heaven and earth, these sort of things are used to mean and to encompass all things. So when he says, indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, and the earth with all that is in, he simply means that all that is in creation. But wherever you go in the universe, if you go up into these stratosphere, if you go through the galaxies and planets, if you are on earth, wherever you may be, all of creation belongs to god indeed heaven and the highest heaven belong to the lord your god and the earth with all that is in it, including you israel so the reason that they are to be loyal to god by fearing him by walking in his ways by loving him by indeed serving him and keeping his commandment is because they belong to god they are god's creatures They have been made by God and for God. He has made us and has made us for himself. This sovereign God, this sovereign king who has made them demands their allegiance. But he gives a second basis for their allegiance to him. He now moves away from the fact that God is a sovereign of the universe and thus they should serve him. But he speaks of God's undeserved and selective love for them. That's what you find in verse 15. He says, the Lord delighted only in your father. More literally, the Lord set his love only in. In your fathers to love them and he chose their descendants after them you above all peoples as it is this day what is he saying why should they follow the Lord? why should they be committed to him why should they walk in all his ways and love him and serve him and obey him why should they fear him it is because the Lord has set his love upon them and notice it says, the Lord delighted only, set his love only. That's a selective love. That's a discriminating love. There is a sense in which God loves all men and thanks be to God for it. He causes the rain to, to, to fall on the just and on the unjust. In his common goodness and grace he preserves us all. But there is a special redemptive saving love electing love that he has for his people. You know, you you may love all the children of the world. You just have a heart for children. When it comes to your child, there's a different kind of love than the general love you have for the world. And God has a special love for his people. And here, Moses says, the reason you should follow God and be committed to him is because he has a special love for you. In other words, you must love him because he first loved you. He talks about this love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that elected them to be God's people. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them with this special electing love. You see, this love is one that Moves God to elect and he chose their descendants. After them, you above all peoples. God chose Israel, not the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Jebusites. He chose Israel above all peoples. You see, God's love was revealed in his selection of Israel to be his own people. And he goes on and he says, for the Lord your God is God of gods. You see, this God who owns the entire universe, who has a cattle on a thousand hill, this God before whom mankind is like the fine dust of the balance, chose out of the masses of humanity Israel. And when You ask the question, why did God choose Israel and not the other nations? The writer answers that question. He tells them in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. In answering the question, why? Why did God set his love on them? Why did God choose them above all other people? He says this, the Lord did not set his love on you nor chose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, it was not because Israel had any merit. They were not, they were not the largest group. They were not, A faithful group. After all, after all, their forefather Abraham was an idolater. He served in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans. He served a god aptly named Sin. Not true. He served Sin. God called him away from his country and from his clan. But he had to break his allegiance with his idols and with his people so that he might be devoted to god not because he was worthy but because of god's love why should israel follow the lord why should they be covenantally committed to him not only because god is sovereign in heaven but because of his love that chose them to be his own people and chose them unconditionally by grace they were to love the Lord because he loved them first. But we've seen something of this significant appeal to covenantal faithfulness in verse 12 and 13. In verse 14, we've seen the justifiable ground for covenantal commitment to the Lord. But In the rest of the chapter, we see something of the necessary prerequisite for covenantal commitment. There is a sense in which, you know, God can call us to serve him. Call us to fear him, to walk in his way, to love him, to serve him and to obey him. But then comes the question, how? How do we do this? How do we be faithful to God? We see something of this in the text for, in verse 16, Moses says to them, having called them to faithfulness, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer, be rebellious no longer. He recognizes, that is Moses, that if they are out of fear, walk, love, serve, and keep God's commandment, that they needed to do so from the heart. And so he says to them, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. The root, to circumcise, means to cut. And when he says, cut then the foreskin, he's asking Israel to put aside their insensitivity and their unresponsive nature and obey God. To circumcise the heart signals that God requires from Israel a heart conformity. That if there is to be obedience to God and a following of God, it must come from the heart. One of the great challenges that unbelievers have is to seek to serve God without a heart relationship. The Lord knew that if they were to love him and obey him and fear him, it must come from the heart. It must be spiritual, it must be inward. And so he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Put aside the rebellious heart. Put aside the insensitive heart. Because only as the heart is devoted to God, the center of our feeling, of our reasoning, of our desires and our willing, only as this heart is devoted to God can it be pleasing to him circumcise the foreskin of your heart give to God an inward spiritual conformity serve him from a willing in other words serve him from a willing joyful and obedient heart but that still raises the question how are they supposed to do this how can they serve them into how can they serve God from the heart well we see the same verb used later in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy and this is a brilliant passage because in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 the Lord says to Israel it's important you know because Deuteronomy 30 comes towards the end of the book we have had chapters of the chapters of instructions given to Israel And so there was always a question over that. Love the Lord and serve the Lord and follow the Lord and be obedient to the Lord. And there's always been this pregnant question, how? And so the Lord eventually answers this through Moses in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, if Israel are to respond to God with a circumcised heart, a heart that is in conformity, willing and sensitive to to God's requirements, God must himself perform a heart surgery. To serve God from a circumcised, sensitive, willing heart requires that God must first perform a spiritual surgery on the heart of man he must quicken he must give them life and so what you find here is god saying to them here in chapter 10 circumcise your heart but i'm the one who's going to do it i'm going to give you a heart of flesh for the heart of stone i'm going to make you spiritually alive and enable you to do so and when God gives them this circumcised heart, this new heart. When he changes their thinking, quicken them by the Spirit, then the circumcised heart will begin to, begin to recognize the incomparability of God. At that time they will know, for the Lord your God is a God of all gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. You see, those who are circumcised in heart will see something of the incomparability of god the majesty of god the greatness of god the uniqueness of god a god who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe they'll begin to see that god is holy that he administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves a stranger and gives him food and clothing but notice those who have a circumcised heart will see god who is incomparable and they will also imitate god in his love for the stranger so you find in verse 19, Therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You see, those who have been circumcised in heart will imitate God. They will love strangers. Why? Because they were strangers. They were people without rights. And God was merciful to them while they were strangers in Egypt. And so he's saying, If you are to be followers of mine and you were to be following me you must also reflect my love for those who are weak and vulnerable strangers because I loved and cared for you when you were weak and vulnerable as strangers you see loving God and obeying God from a circumcised heart does not only mean that we are passionate about God but that we imitate him by reflecting his love to those who are in need in verses 19 to 21 Moses In fact, rehearses some of the earlier requirements, so he calls them now to fear the Lord and serve him, hold fast and take oaths in his name. And he reminds them that he is their praise, the one whom they praise and the one who is the basis of their glory. He is their God, who has done great and wonderful things for them. And he reminds them about how God delivered them. They went down to Egypt as 70 and came out as a multitude as great as the stars of heaven. A hyperbole, but nevertheless to show that they had gone from being 70 people, and over the course of 400 years they had become a mighty, mighty nation. When we think of a passage like this in our 21st century, we must legitimately ask, how does this now apply to me? I think that it is important to note that today we who are believers are the true people of God. In the Old Testament, Israel, they were the people God chose to be His ambassadors, to shine His light among the nations, to teach the nations. They were called to be a priestly people before the nations. They were God's people, God's elect. But in the New Testament, Scripture considers Christians... To be the true Israel, the true Jew. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You and I, if we are Christians, we are God's people. And we are God's people because of his divine electing grace. He has chosen us. You cannot read passages like Ephesians chapter 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. You cannot read 1 Peter chapter 1 without recognizing that we are God's elect. That God has set his love upon us when we were sinners. That God loved us in eternity and chose us to be his own. That salvation is not about us choosing God, but God choosing us. And if any man makes a choice for God in this world, it is because God has already made a choice for him in eternity. Our choice is always dependent upon the choice of God. And never the other way around. In other words, God does not choose us because we chose him. No, we choose to serve Him because He has chosen us in eternity. We're God's choice. We were known to Him before we were in a mother's womb. He had placed His love upon us before our parents were conceived and the world was created. From eternity, you have been known to Him. You're God's people, God's choice. And He chose us freely and voluntarily and he chose us even though we had no merit there's no nothing in us that deserves to be chosen you may say "Well, how do we see that 1 Corinthians 1 I'm just choosing a random passage because I could go anywhere in the New Testament but in 1 Corinthians 1.27 Paul says this (laughs) and it's not very pretty Let's, let's read it but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not To bring to nothing the things are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, when God placed his love upon us, we had no merit to attract him. He did not choose us because we were lovely, but precisely because we were unlovely. There's nothing in us to commend us to him. And yet he placed his love in eternity and says you shall be mine and you shall make up my jewels that's God's electing grace and just as how Israel was to serve God because though they were nobodies God chose them to be somebodies so we who were nobodies have been chosen to be somebodies we must serve him and we have not been brought into a new covenant God chose us in eternity in time. He brought us through Jesus Christ. And his death on the cross, he brought us into a new relationship. It is Christ who died and delivered us from our Egypt. From our captivity and bondage. From that dark night of the soul. It is Christ who by his blood who rescued us. You see, all whom God has chosen, Christ has died for them. And those for whom Christ dies, the spirit of God will quicken them and save them as many as were chosen to life believed. That's what we're reminded by the writer Luke. But God's choice of us, God's salvation, demands from us devotion. What does the Lord require of us? We know what we require of God. And in fact, we have many requests for God. The Bible invites us to come to the Lord with our requests. To make known our needs to God. We're to come and pour our needs to him. We have many requests for God. But God has requests for us. We often think about what we want God to do for us. But we don't often think about what God wants us to do for him. But God has requirements for us. Because he's our sovereign king and because... He is the one who has chosen us and saved us. What does God require of us? It's a question that you and I must ask. Lord, what will you have of me? What do you want from me? And the two concepts that summarize what God wants is fear. That when there is a healthy respect for God, when we recognize that God is God and that He's a consuming fire, that God is the one who gives life and takes it, that we are nothing, that we live only by His behest, we live by His will and by His good pleasure, that if we succeed or if we fail in life, it's not really up to us but to Him. That all of life depends on Him. If we come to realize that this great God is the God with whom we deal, we must reverence Him. One of my great tragedies is that I do not fear God enough. And I suspect that is a confession that all of us can make. We do not treat God with sufficient respect. We think of God as one of us, but he's not. He requires that we reverence him. And secondly, he requires that we love him. These two, these two concepts essentially captures what we are required of God to do on his account to fear him and to love him, because where there's reverence for God and love for God, we will walk in God's way, we will worship God, and we will essentially keep his commandments. Let me be very clear that the New Testament demands these of us. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, 28 says, Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You mustn't think that the fear of God, respect for God, is an Old Testament idea. The writer of Hebrews says, Let's serve God acceptably. How do you serve God in a manner that is acceptable or appropriate? By having godly fear, by reverence. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment in the New Testament is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, and with all our soul, and with all our mind. Paul tells the Corinthians, that anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. So we are required to love the Lord. But love for the Lord, this vertical relationship with God, must be worked out on the horizontal plane where we not only show love for God, but love for our neighbor. You see, it is by loving the stranger that we manifest an aspect of loving our neighbor. We cannot live in a world where we see people suffering around us. That we are unconcerned about their condition. That we will not help them even when we have the means. And yet we declare that we love God. It is not possible to love the God who you cannot see if you cannot love your brother who you see. And so what I'm arguing is that we are called upon to demonstrate love for God. And one of the ways we do so is by loving our brother who is in this case the stranger. But I won't leave you there. Why is it possible? Why is it possible that you and I can live for God, follow him, serve him, love him, worship him? Well, it is because of what God has done. The Apostle Paul says it this way, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. This call to be faithful and loyal to God is not a call to depend upon our strength. No, no, no. It's addressed to us because God has saved us. Paul says, you are the circumcision. You are the ones whom God has given a new heart. And even though you are not yet perfected, Even though we are still traveling on this road to glory. Even though we still fail. What we do know is that though we are not perfect. We are new creations. Because Christ has saved us. He has given us a new heart. Programmed with righteousness. He has given us the ability to think his thoughts. And to love him and to serve him. And so the call to serve God. Is to call to serve God by God's strength. By God's grace. Because he has given us a circumcised heart. You, you by the grace of God are able to serve him though not perfectly but genuinely because he has made you new. He has given you the power and he will give you the grace you need to live godly, to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him and to serve him with all your heart. May God help you to depend upon him. May you come before him and say, Lord, what do you require of me? Maybe he will tell you, you've got to break off from your sins. You've got to devote yourself to more worship. You've got to draw nearer and closer to God's people. What does God require of you? That's a question we must ask. But fundamentally, he calls you to fear him and to love him. May he do that within us by his grace. And he who has called us will do it for his sake. Amen.